Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What can six decades of studying chimpanzees teach us about human beings? I'm Sigal Samuel, and I write for Vox about everything from artificial intelligence to animal intelligence. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Take a second to think back to what you were doing when you were 26 years old. When I was 26, I was working an entry-level journalism job. Sitting at a desk all day, typing at a computer, you know, pretty standard office stuff. When Jane Goodall was 26, she was trekking through the forests of Tanzania to study wild chimpanzees. At first, they'd run away from her, but after months of patient interaction, she actually became accepted as a member of their community, the first researcher ever to win that distinction. She had no academic degree, and yet she was making pioneering discoveries. Chimps use tools. Chimps hunt and eat meat. Chimps have complex emotional lives, from loving parental bonds to brutality and aggression. Her discoveries overturned the dominant paradigm of the day, which I can sum up in two words, human exceptionalism. It's the idea that we humans are totally different from and superior to animals. Jane has said that helping us to ditch that idea to blur the line between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom has been her greatest achievement in life. So now that Jane's 87, I wanted to reflect on what the past 60 years of studying chimps has taught her, not about chimps, but about us humans. And what can people do to help animals and the natural environment that we all rely on? Jane, hello. Thank you so very much for being here with us. Hello. Yes. Thank you for inviting me. Can I first ask you a little bit of a funny request? I wonder if you could actually say hello to me the way that a chimp would greet a fellow chimp. I can greet you as a chimp would greet another one across a distance. And it's called the pantoot. And it's And that means this is me, this is Jane. So if you hear it, you know my voice, and you can then reconnect with me in the forest if you so wish. That's amazing. Thank you for humoring me with that. Um, helps me kind of get in the forest state of mind. And I kind of wanted to just start by asking you to sort of time travel back to 1960, because when you first started studying wild chimps around 1960, scientists knew almost nothing about their behavior, and yet they were very, very sure that a scientist should not 
Talk about a chimp having mind, personality, emotion. Only humans had those. But you very quickly discovered that that's just not true. So what was your first clue that chimps are actually reasoning, feeling creatures like we are? Well, actually, I learned it long before I got to Gombe to study the chimpanzees, because when I was a child, I had a wonderful teacher. And that was my dog, Rusty. You cannot share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a rat, a bird, a horse, a pig, I don't care, and not know that they have emotions similar to ours, that they have minds that can sometimes solve problems. In fact, animal intelligence today is the hot topic in animal behavior research. But what you have to realize is that when I went to Gombe, I hadn't been to college. I had absolutely no idea that scientists had this reductionist feeling about animals. So I went knowing that, of course, the chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, would have emotions, would have personalities, and would be highly intelligent. The only uh, research that had been done on chimpanzees at that time was in captivity. And <laughs> there was one wonderful book called The Mentality of Apes, written by an Austrian psychologist about a colony of captive chimpanzees, oddly enough, in the Canary Island. He wrote this book, and immediately all the other scientists pounced on him and said, well, I mean, these are captive chimpanzees. They're only intelligent because our humanity has rubbed off on them. Mm. I mean, how arrogant can you get? So you always sort of intuitively knew that that's not the case. And, you know, in some sense, was it actually helpful for you to be going into Gombe and Tanzania without having scientific training or an academic degree? Because that kind of enabled you to just see what you were seeing without those blinders having been put on you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I grew up loving animals. I'm speaking to you from the home where I grew up as a child. At that time, there was no television. It hadn't been invented. World War II was raging. Uh, we had very little money, but I was in my grandmother's house. as a lovely garden. So I spent my time either out in the garden or on the cliffs above the sea watching whatever animals I could find or reading books. That's how I learned. And I know you were a fan of some classics like Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan that sort of helped stoke your love of animals. And I wonder, you know, when you actually got to the, the forests in, in Gombe and Tanzania, you developed very close relationships to some of the wild chimps. And contrary to the scientific practice of the day, you gave them names, human names that are, that are really idiosyncratic, like David Greybeard or Fifi or other names like that. And that was, of course, you know, very uh, taboo, I think, in the scientific community where you were supposed to maintain this uh, veneer of objective distance from research subjects. But I think you you have never been shy about developing these loving connections with the animals. And I wonder if you could tell me about a chimp that you particularly loved and whether you think you could say that he or she loved you back. Well, first of all, when I went, I, as I tell you, I hadn't been to college I didn't know that it wasn't scientific to give them names. And of course I gave them names. I mean, any animal that you have anything to do with, you give a name normally. So yes, as I got to know them, 
And this took time because for at least four months they were running away from me. I was very worried because it was only money for six months. And bless the man who gave that money because there I was, never having been to college, straight out from England, chosen by the eminent paleontologist, anthropologist, Lewis Leakey. So, you know, when, when I finally got to know them as individuals, well, the most special one, always, was the individual who first lost his fear of me, David Greybeard. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I named him that. The Greybeard, yes, he had the most beautiful, distinctive white hair on his chin. So David and Goliath, Goliath I subsequently discovered was his best friend and who happened to be the top-ranking or alpha male. So David Greybeard was the one who first lost his fear, who showed me that chimpanzees can use and make tools, which was the breakthrough observation, because at that time, Western science thought that humans and only humans used and made tools. He showed me that chimpanzees sometimes hunt and eat meat. But more than that, I think he helped me to come to terms with the other chimpanzees of his community, because I'd approach a group ready to run, but if David was there, he just sat calmly. And so I could see them looking from him to me. And I suppose they thought, well, she can't be so frightening after all. So gradually, it was almost as though he didn't, but it was as though he introduced me to his friends in the forest. And gradually, I got to know them all as individuals, as different from each other as we are, and to learn more and more about their lives in the wild. Do you think that he had, you know, you speak about him with a a tone of great affection. Do you think that he had some affection toward you? No, no. He just had trust. Mm. You know, I never tried to get into their community. I just wanted to be like looking through a window into their lives. But in order to do that, I had to gain their trust. Mm -hmm. And that's what David Grady had helped me to do. He trusted me. In other words, he trusted that I wasn't going to harm him. He believed I was harmless, which of course I was. He really helped me to start this study in the best possible way. There were times, though, when some of the chimps didn't trust you, right? And they probably got a little bit nervous at first. And I think as a result, you you witnessed and even personally experienced some aggression from a couple of them. Is that right? Well, the thing was that as they lost their fear of this peculiar white ape who'd invaded their territory, some of them began treating me like a predator. Mm. And they wanted me to go away. It was very clear. And they would give those terrible, chilling calls that they make when they see a predator. And they would shake branches and stamp past me, definitely trying to intimidate me. And I used to pretend well, I'm not interested in you, and I dig little holes in the ground and pretend to eat leaves. And eventually they moved away. You know what was interesting? They showed more of that behavior when it was raining. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when it's pouring with rain, people take risks when they run across a street. Mm. They're so miserable in the rain. So it was just so the chimpanzees were you know, we're absolutely miserable in this horrible creature. Uh, we don't like her, and so we'll just give her what for. 
So they were more likely to, to be aggressive in the rain? Yes, because they lost their inhibitions. But this, luckily, that phase of fear turning to aggression didn't last for long, and maybe a couple of months. And then it turned to one of trust. Right. There was initially, if I remember correctly, a time when one of them actually hit you on the back of the head, right? Yes, I kept very, very still. Uh, it's chimpanzees. I could hear them approaching from behind, and I hoped they wouldn't see me. I was waiting for chimps to arrive in a fruiting tree, and they did see me, of course. And there were some of these little worried sounds. They go, oh, 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 and silence. And I was lying there thinking, what's going to happen next? I mean, I didn't know. I knew they were like eight, ten times more powerful than me. And then suddenly there was a crashing in the dry leaves and a wham on the back of my head. And I think this chimpanzee was so proud of his bravery. <laughs> he led the rest of the group over and they did climb into the fruit tree. I personally would have been terrified in that scenario. Were you scared? Afterwards, at the time, it was just so exciting that I had contact made by a chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> Even getting hit upside the head was, you know, that's contact. So that must have been exciting in its way. And it wasn't wasn't a very hard hit, but, you know, he did whack my head. As the years went on there, you did go on to observe some pretty serious violence between groups of chimps. And, and even you've referred to it as a war that kind of broke out between these different groups. And I, I wonder, you know, do you think that at first you sort of romanticized chimps, uh, sort of thinking that they were like us humans, but nicer, and then had to move away from that view a bit? Yeah, it was a shock. I did think they were like us, but nicer. Mm -hmm. The thing is that they're highly territorial, and the males will get together and patrol the boundaries of their territory. And if they spy an individual from a neighboring community, they're likely to chase. It's quite scary, actually. The gr little group of patrolling males We'll climb a tree and stare out over what we can think of as hostile neighboring community, totally silent. They don't make a sound. They don't groom each other. They just sit staring with their hair bristling. And then if they see an individual, they'll give chase. And if they see a group, then the two groups will noisily shout at each other and usually retreat. I, I'm curious, sort of given the two poles you've discovered, you know, you've discovered um, some very trusting behavior and some, you know, bonds, and you've also discovered some aggression and violence. You know, nowadays, do you think of chimps as being capable of altruism or kindness on the one hand and malice or evil on the other? Not evil. I think only humans are capable of evil because to me, evil is not responding to an aggressive impulse, which is what chimps do, but sitting deliberately in cold blood and planning the destruction of another human being, the torture, or planning a war based not on normal people hating each other, but usually based on natural resources. But, you know, we're, we're just like them. We have a good side and a dark side, but I think our dark side is worse because we are capable of evil. I think our good side is better, 
because while chimps can be altruistic, they're again responding to the immediate emotion. But we can be altruistic, thinking about the consequences to ourselves and realizing that if we move ahead to help that person, it may have serious negative impacts on us, but doing it all the same because of this compassion that we have. Right. And so chimps, maybe they, they can act kindly toward one another, but it wouldn't be with quite that same uh, level of calculation as a human? No, because you know what differs us most is the explosive development of our intellect. Mm-hmm. So I think that was partly triggered by the fact that at some point in our evolution, we developed a spoken language. And this enabled people from different disciplines to get together and have discussions. And because of this power of words, we came up with moral codes. Mm -hmm. And we know what's right and what's wrong. The only tragedy is that in some cultures, children are taught a very different moral code. And it's hard to know what can be done about that. You're talking about language as, as sort of a distinguishing feature uh, that, that humans developed. And I think the other one that was classically uh, previously held up as a paradigmatic feature of humankind was tool use. And you kind of alluded to this a moment ago, but there was this fateful day when you did observe a chimpanzee sticking a stalk of grass into a termite hole and then pulling out the stalk that was now covered in termites and eating them and sort of realizing like, hey, this is this is tool use. Um, you know, when you had that moment of observation and, and you later wrote to your mentor, Louis Leakey, about what you'd seen, he sort of replied with this quote that I, I love, I find very evocative. He said, we must now redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as human. I wonder if you immediately shared that sense that this was a revolutionary observation. Like, did you realize right then and there when you were watching this tool use happening, like, whoa, this is something huge? Well, as I read this book I mentioned earlier, The Mentality of Apes, seeing David Gribbeard using tools and even making them by trimming leafy twigs, didn't actually surprise me, but I had read enough to know that Western science believed that only humans used and made tools. So I knew that this was a very important observation. And I waited to see it again. I could hardly believe that I'd seen it. So I waited until I saw a couple more chimpanzees using tools. And it was only then that I wrote to Lewis Leakey. And the thing is that at that time, we were defined as man the toolmaker. Mm-hmm. That's what caused Louis Leakey to write those famous words. And uh, that was the turning point. That was what enabled Leakey to go to Geographic. They agreed to fund the research when my six months ran out. And they also sent the filmmaker, Hugo Van Nuyck, to record the behavior that I was increasingly learning about. And as someone who recognized these sort of human-like traits in non-human primates very early on, have you found that that either forces people to expand the circle of humanity or shrink what they understand human nature to be? Uh, I think it's now generally accepted that we are not the only beings on the planet with personalities, minds, and emotions, that we are part of and not separated 
from the rest of the animal kingdom. And yet when I first got to Cambridge, and I've been with the chimps one and a half years, I was actually told that the difference between us, chimps, and all other animals was one of kind. In other words, we were on a pinnacle, mm. separated from all the others by an unbridgeable chasm. And if you want to think about it poetically, it was David and I meeting that bridged that chasm and slowly changed the perception of science and many people towards who animals really are. Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, Jane's pioneering work helped overturn a way of looking at animals as fundamentally inferior to human beings. But when we give animals more credit, how do we know we're not just projecting our own human traits onto them? I'll ask Jane this after the break. Why do you think it was so taboo in your early years for scientists to anthropomorphize animals? It seems to me like anthropomorphizing, that was the, the insult of choice, right? Like That was like the worst thing you could be accused of doing. Why was that so taboo then? It's still taboo now, actually. Mm. But I, th- I think it was the long arm of religion reaching out. I mean, if you think how Darwin was greeted when he got back after the voyage of the Beagle, with his theory of evolution, religion was up in arms immediately. And a lot of scientists were beholden to religion. They they believed in religion, so they could not believe in evolution. And that idea persisted. We had to think of the the difference between them and us as a difference in kind, not just a difference in degree. Yeah. And, you know, we were different because we had a soul. And they didn't. And what's been fascinating to me over the years, one by one, all the different arguments brought up by those who would deny animal sentience have been broken down, very often by chimpanzee behavior. So today, I think most scientists believe that we're part of the animal kingdom. The people who don't want to believe in animal sentience, the power of suffering, those people who are working in ways that are very cruel to animals. Do you think that humans have had a tendency to dismiss certain species as unintelligent? Because we think that intelligence has to look the way it does in humans for it to count as intelligence, right? Like you were talking about language and tool use. Those are classic hallmarks of intelligence that we humans have thought up. But we focus on those instead of recognizing that Different species might have different types of smarts, like bats' uh, echolocation or birds' ability to use starlight or magnetism to navigate. Are we too focused on a very human-centered way of defining what counts as smart? Of course we are. I mean, that's the whole premise of science, that that we're above the animals in all these different ways. And there are some ways that animals are highly intelligent, in ways that we certainly would be completely stupid in. And then we expect animals to respond to intelligence tests, so they're people. They're not people, they're animals. And they've developed their intelligence to cope with the problems that they meet in their lives in the wild. And what's so amazing is 
the degree of intelligence, even when we subject them to our stupid tests <laughs> in birds. You used to talk about people having a bird brain. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Just because a bird brain is different in anatomy from a human brain doesn't mean that birds aren't amazingly smart. And crows are capable of solving problems that some eight-year-old humans can't solve. And then we go down to the amazing intelligence of rats. And finally, the octopus, whose brain is so utterly different from ours. So they have one sort of central brain. Then they have brains in all their eight arms. And each arm can work independently and solve problems. What you're saying is reminding me about the story that the primatologist Franz Dewal likes to tell about these researchers who were trying to test the intelligence of elephants, and they gave an elephant a stick uh, so he could, you know, maybe use a stick to reach for some food that was uh, outside the enclosure. And they were disappointed to see the elephant didn't use his trunk to grab the stick and bring the food closer, and they concluded, therefore, elephants don't use tools. What they didn't consider is that an elephant trunk is uh, not just a hand like our human hand, but also is sort of functions as a nose. And maybe an elephant won't want to grab for food if it has to block its nose. It would want to be able to smell the food, you know, to see if it's worth grabbing and eating. And then later on, another researcher came and provided boxes that the elephant could place underneath some food that was higher up. You know, if he wanted to, he could move those boxes over and use them as a step stool to reach the food. And the researcher saw the elephant did do that, and that was tool use. Just the, the test had been designed all wrong from sort of like a, a human-centered point of view. Is that mistake still being commonly made? Oh, I think so. I think it's made again and again. And, you know, elephants, elephants use sticks to scratch themselves with. But believe it or not, so do horses. And believe it or not, so do goats. And all kinds of animals are now found using tools. Dolphins use sponges to mop up certain foods from the ocean floor. It's just amazing the amount of tool use that goes on where animals use an outside object to achieve a specific purpose. Many animals, many animals. So it, it kind of seems like we maybe want to avoid imposing human standards on animals when assessing them, like a sort of anthropocentrism about how we test them. But we also don't want to go so far to this other extreme that we refuse to acknowledge any human-like traits in animals whatsoever. And we we say anthropomorphizing is like the most terrible thing you can do. We only have human terms to describe these things in. But then we're accused of anthropomorphism. And also, I was told when I was at Cambridge I didn't believe it, but I was told that a scientist should not have empathy with her subject. You've got to be objective. If you have empathy for the subject, you cannot be scientifically objective, which is absolute rubbish. Of course you can. I mean, I've, I've proved it again and again. And if you deny the role of empathy, then you deny a very important avenue of research. So when I got to know the chimpanzees really well, I would empathize with them. And I was looking at a piece of behavior that perhaps puzzled me, and it would come to me in a moment, a kind of aha moment. I think that's because, and that was because of empathy. And then mm. 
once you come to that uh, understanding, then you can step back and put on your scientific hat and try to prove or disprove what you believe to be true. Were there certain findings or observations that you didn't publish back then for fear of being ridiculed or criticized by this scientific community? Oh, no, never, 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 never. Absolutely never. The thing I was criticized most on was the fact that I talked about chimpanzee aggression Mm. probably being innate. And, you know, the reason that Louis Leakey sent me to study the chimps was because he believed, as it's widely accepted now, that about six million years ago, there was an ape-like, human-like common ancestor. And because chimps are our closest relatives today, Leakey reasoned, well, if Jane finds behavior that's similar in modern chimpanzees and modern humans, then it's very probable that that behavior was in that common ancestor. Mm-hmm. And we brought that trait with us through our separate evolutionary pathways. So that led to me talking about some innate aggressive tendencies in humans. I got so much trouble for that. It was in the early 70s when there was this big argument in science about nature versus nurture. It's a baby born with a clean slate and only experience will make that child aggressive or kind. And so when I said no, there was an instinctive element to it, I was heavily criticized. But, I mean, it makes sense. How can you possibly look around the world and say that there isn't an innate aggressive tendency in humans? Yeah, I mean, even just just sort of from looking around at human history, I, I think that seems pretty intuitive. Yeah. Um, do you feel like in the intervening years since then, observation and, and the science has come to back up some of the, the claims that were controversial early on? And, and do you feel kind of vindicated? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, students today can study animal personality. Mm-hmm. They can study animal intellect as a hot topic, but they can also study animal emotion. And I couldn't have studied any of those because they were supposed not to exist. (laughs) So, you know, and I think when I realized the way that science was treating my chimp work, I I didn't confront them. I just went on quietly writing about for my PhD the way that chimps behave. And then came Hugo van Lauwek, his film, Mm. documentation. People then had to believe the things that I was saying were true. And I think the best thing that happened for me, my supervisor at Cambridge was one of the top three ethologists of the time who helped us start the discipline of ethology. And he started off being a really stern critic. Then he came to Gombe. Mm. He told me afterwards, in two weeks I learned more about animal behavior than all the rest of my life. He then helped me to write about what I believed to be true, which was true, in such a way that I couldn't be criticized by my scientific colleagues. I owe him a huge amount because I love thinking as a scientist, but that does not overwrite my love of animals and my intuitive understanding of them. So there's no question but science is coming around to understanding that we are part of the animal kingdom. But there's still little pockets of resistance. 
And of course, those people working in animal laboratories, animal research, they don't want to think animals are sentient. People working in these terrible factory farms, they don't want to believe animals are sentient beings capable of feeling fear and pain. It's not convenient to believe that. I mean, I think that part of why it's so hard for us to give up on this idea of human exceptionalism, this idea that humans are superior to other animals, is because if we do abandon that idea, we would have to probably change a lot of how we're living. What do you think would be the implications exactly for how we treat animals, how we treat the environment, if we did ditch that idea? Well, point is we have to. We're almost at a point of no return on the planet today. And this increasing consumption of meat around the world as nations get wealthier, mm-hmm. you know, it's not only the unbelievable cruelty of the billions of animals in intensive farming, but they all have to be fed. Huge areas of habitat are destroyed to grow the grain to feed them, massive amounts of fossil fuel used to prepare the sites, get the food to the animals and the animals to the slaughter and the meat to the table. Huge amounts of water are used to get vegetable into animal protein and in some parts of the world, water is getting increasingly scarce due to climate change. And also all these animals produce methane gas in their digestion. So along with carbon dioxide from all our burning of fossil fuels, and destruction of the rainforest and burning the rainforest, you know, these are creating the so-called greenhouse gases that are circling the planet, trapping the heat of the sun, leading to climate change and changes in weather patterns, which, you know, it's just finally arrived in such an obvious way in Europe with these terrible floods in Germany, Austria, and Holland. But we see the results of these climate changes in the terrible wildfires, and there's wildfires burning in many parts of uh, Western Americas right now. And we see it in rising sea levels, which is causing some people to have to leave their homes. Mm-hmm. And we see it in the increase of the really bad hurricanes and storms. So we brought this on ourselves by our absolute disrespect of the natural world and our crazy belief that we can have unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources. It doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. And I know that you're on the record advocating for, you know, for example, you just mentioned our meat eating habit, and you're on the record advocating for people to eat no meat or at least less of it. But I'm curious to ask you about strategy here, because, you know, you've also said you don't find it's effective to just sort of yell at people about how they need to stop eating meat right now or they need to change this or that thing because of climate, um, that, that just that sort of confrontational approach might not be the most effective route to behavior change. So I'm kind of curious what you think are the most effective routes. Uh, for example, one thing that's being touted a lot now is the new food technologies for making meatless meat, like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger. Is that new technology something you're hopeful about as a route to behavior change? Well, definitely. But, you know, the way that I tackle these issues, whether it's meat eating or anything else, is I feel it's really important to reach the heart because people have got to change from within. They've got to change because they want to change. Mm -hmm. And if you batter at them and 
blind them with science. They don't want to listen to you. But if you can quietly tell a story, then you may reach the heart. And that's when people make change. And you know, we have this program for young people. And I'm told again and again and again by parents and by children that they are changing the attitude of their parents and grandparents. So you're talking about the Roots and Shoots program that you created to reach youth and sort of help mobilize them. And it sounds like when youth get involved in climate and environment and helping animals, they are typically pretty powerful agents of change with regard to changing their parents' mindset. Yes, and also they actually make some change in the environment. And I think the reason Roots and Shoots has grown, it's in more than 60 countries now, with members from kindergarten through university. And as we began it in 91, there's many adults who've been through the program who maintain values of respect. So I think the reason it's so successful is because it's not a top-down. The young people choose themselves three projects to help the world become a better place. And if young people get to choose what to do, they're passionate about it. And then they roll up their sleeves, they get out there and they take action. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, Jane's passion and optimism for the future is palpable, and I find it inspiring. But honestly, I can't help but worry. Given how dire the climate situation is right now, do we need more than just inspiration? That's coming up after the break. I think what scares me is that we are really running out of time now on the planet in terms of the climate emergency, in terms of biodiversity loss. I I love the idea of trying to change people's behavior by, you know, telling stories that reach to their heart. But I kind of am scared that we're running out of time for just relying on that method. I'm a little scared that, you know, if we just try to speak to the heart and not be overly confrontational and have these bottom up rather than top down approaches, we're not going to make it in time. Does that, are you scared about that? Uh, well, there's plenty of people who are providing all the facts and all the doom and gloom, masses of it. My role in life is to give people hope because if you run out of hope, we may as well give up because if you don't have hope that your actions will make a difference, why bother? And so, Before the pandemic grounded me, I was traveling all around the world 300 days a year, and I was meeting incredible people doing amazing things. I was seeing areas be totally destroyed, once again, nature taking over if we give them time. I was meeting people who'd saved animals from the very brink of extinction because they cared. Those are the kind of stories that resonate with people. They don't remember facts and figures. Mm -hmm. They get a sense of doom and gloom. But if there's too much doom and gloom, people won't do anything. So my message is one of hope, that if we get together, but now, as you say, we're running out of time. 
But if we get together now, there is still a window of time that is closing. So we need to get together now and remember that every single day each one of us lives, we make an impact on the planet and we get to choose what sort of impact we make. But for this to work, one, the Western world, the affluent world, must reduce its environmental footstep. We're not living sustainable lives, most of us. Secondly, we've got to alleviate poverty. Because if you're in real poverty, you destroy the environment, you cut down the last tree, you're desperate to get a bit more fertile land to grow food for your family or to make money from chocolate. If you're in a city, you buy the cheapest food or clothing. You cannot afford to say, how was it made? Did it harm the environment? Is it cruel to animals? Is it cheap because of unequal wages? You have to buy the cheapest to survive. And then we cannot ignore the fact that the human population is still growing. And yes, we're told that in so many years, it will start the reverse trend that some countries already have. But nevertheless, over 7 billion of us on the planet now, and already we're using up nature's natural resources in some places faster than nature can replenish them. And by 2050, it's estimated to be closer to 10 billion of us. So if we carry on with business as usual, if we carry on allowing business and politics to take short-term gain over protection of the planet, the environment, for future generations. You know, what's going to happen in 2050 with 10 billion of us on the planet? I think, you know, over your years in, in Gombe and Tanzania and beyond, you sort of came to redefine conservation to include the needs of the local people there and the environment there. As you say, kind of realizing that if you don't help the local community meet their needs in sustainable ways, then you're not going to help make it possible for them to conserve their own lands. Is that sort of approach, which which really looks at poverty and the human element, has that become fairly accepted and, and common within conservation? Or do you find that too many people, when they think about animal conservation or land conservation, are purely thinking about the animals and the land and not sufficiently factoring in the human needs. Yeah, that's true. Mm. But more and more and more conservation groups understand the need to involve local communities, more and more and more of them. You know, when I began, the NGOs would kind of throw out a bit of bush meat and stuff like that, but now they're beginning to understand. And our program is very holistic. It includes restoring fertility, to overuse farmland without these terrible chemical pesticides and herbicides and so on, improving health and education and providing scholarships to keep girls in school beyond puberty because as women's education increases, family size tends to drop, providing microcredit opportunities, particularly for women, so they can choose their own small environmentally sustainable businesses. You know, everything is interconnected. That's the success of our Takari program, which is our method of community-led conservation. And these people have now become our partners, understanding that protecting the environment is for their own future, not just for wildlife. 
And I, I mean, I think this is a really promising direction. And I hope we're moving more in this direction because we, you know, we know we have a lot of evidence suggesting that Indigenous people and local communities are typically the best conservationists of their land, but their ideas about land stewardship and, and how to take care of the beings uh, on their land often go under-recognized and under-appreciated. This has come up pretty recently when talking about the goal known as 30 by 30, right? So this, uh, you know, now at this point, more than 50 countries have committed to conserving at least 30% of their lands and waters by 2030. I'm curious what you think about that. You know, one thing is really necessary, that talking and making commitments is one thing. Taking action and actually acting on those commitments is something else. And you've only got to think back to the Paris Agreement Mm -hmm. and the countries that offered to limit their own emissions, their own CO2 emissions. How many of them actually honoured those commitments? The only countries I'm told that came close are those that offloaded their really dirty industries into countries like China and India. But now China and India are getting smart and they don't want these dirty industries to contaminate their record. So, you know, we need action, not words, not promises, but action. And I really believe that this terrible flooding in Europe is going to push complacent people into realizing that threat of climate change is real. It's not something far away. It's not something affecting the poor people in Bangladesh. It's affecting us now. What do you think about the role of law here? I mean, there have been some promising uh, movements in the courts. We've seen in the past couple of years in a few European countries that we've seen in the Netherlands, for example, I think in Germany too, court rulings saying that actually the government policies are not doing enough to curve carbon emissions. Uh, and so they're, they're actually infringing on the rights of young people and future generations. And so they're, they're imposing stricter targets that those government policies are going to have to meet in the coming years. And also when it comes to protecting animals, there are these, these current efforts to win rights for chimpanzees, elephants, and other animals to grant them the legal status of personhood. These are very much still nascent efforts that are trying to move through the courts. But I'm generally curious what you think about, you know, how much should we be investing in the law as a strategy for getting stuff done that mere words and empty promises can't get done? Well, problem with laws is that when you get a new government coming in, Laws and regulations can be overturned just like that. Mm. And you've only got to look at the recent example in the United States that Trump, during his time in office, I think it was something like 78 environmental protections he just overturned and wiped out. And now, of course, Biden's come in and is trying to replace them. But if another president comes in, four years, eight years later, will those get overturned? That's the problem. So I think we have to really concentrate on human responsibility Mm. in each one of us. The the laws are okay. I wouldn't say don't do them. In some countries, they will be, you know, accepted. But it's more than just the law. It's what the people want, what the people believe. That's absolutely crucial, I believe. 
Right. So this is that idea that you're mentioning earlier that we really have to reach to people's hearts and, you know, kind of awaken them to the yearning to actually improve things. I am curious, though, how do you go about reaching the people who aren't already converted to this message, really trying to spread this message um, of hope, but also of the need for action? But I imagine that a lot of the people who would come to such a talk are already probably the people who think this is important, right? How do you reach the people who desperately need to hear the message, people who work at large corporations, people who are in charge of, you know, the big polluters? How do you reach those people? With difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) But fortunately, you know, I've got this image of this chimpanzee lady and people are fascinated. Mm -hmm. And so very often I can get into a big corporation to talk to their staff. And, you know, big corporations, if we don't like the way they operate, consumer pressure is important. If you're not very poor, having to buy the cheapest, you can say, I will not buy your food. And we know that that makes a difference. The head of a big company, the CEO, he can be changed by his child, telling him, Daddy, I'm ashamed of you. I've known it happen. You know, when you come to politics, I don't even want to go there. It's just too difficult. But there is one thing. I've known people go into politics passionate about the environment, determined to implement regulations. And then they try, they put forward a bill, and it may mean that food, organic food, costs a few pennies more. So all the people who elected them suddenly, oh, it's going to affect my pocketbook. And they turn their back on the person they elected. And, you know, if, for example, food or clothing costs a little bit more, you will value it more and waste less. And that is absolutely one of the big problems in the world today. It's waste, waste, waste. Landfills filled up and poor people going hungry while the rest of the world throws food away every day. And those are the kind of things You know, another reason for hope, more and more and more groups of people are coming together all around the world, fighting this injustice and working to put things right. And I mean, you've been known actually to meet not just with people who are already in agreement with these general sentiments that you're expressing, but, you know, with people who are running oil companies, you know, fossil fuel companies. I know there, there's been some controversy about that kind of thing over the years, but have you found it to be effective to meet with such people and kind of speak to their heart as if you're coming from the assumption that they underneath want to do good? Has that actually like yielded fruit in your experience? Yes. I mean, when we were offered money by Conoco, the oil and gas company in Congo, to help build a sanctuary for orphan chimps whose mothers were killed by the illegal bushmeat trade. Yes. And so, of course, there were many people who said, oh, you can't take money from them. But they were, without any question, the most environmental group of oil and gas that I've ever known. And they had an amazing vice president of exploration who drove this. So I started thinking to myself, okay, I fly out to Congo. I fly in a plane that uses fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. I drive to my destination in a car that uses petrol. So I'm paying this company for their products. And yet 
refusing to take money from them, which will help the chimpanzees and the local people, and by accepting it, will be in a position to work quietly to make them even better, to reinforce what they're already doing. So, you know, there are some oil and gas companies I would never take money from, never, never, mm. never, like BP and Exxon. But, you know, those companies that are really trying to invest a lot of money in alternative energy, and they're trying to do right by the environment, then we should work with them, and they can help us with funds, and we can help them to get better. You are the 2021 recipient of the Templeton Prize, which is awarded to people who harness the power of the sciences to explore really deep spiritual questions, big questions like humankind's purpose in the universe. And I know you've described your time in the forests of Tanzania as the happiest time of your life and also as a very spiritual time. So I'm just wondering if you could say something about how studying the chimpanzees deepened your own spirituality and and how that time maybe shaped your feelings about what it means to be human, what our purpose is on this planet, and our interconnection to other creatures on Earth. Well, I was thinking about our place in the universe and our purpose for being on this planet long before I went to Gombe. It was just when I was growing up, my grandfather was a congregational minister, and I had a very wise mother. She said to me, well, you know, you're born into a Christian family, so you go to church sometimes, and then you worship God, but you might have been born in Egypt and be Muslim, and then you would be thinking about Allah, or you might be uh, in a Buddhist community. But there can only be one God, and what we call him doesn't matter. So I had that sort of background in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of moved away from those thoughts. You know, I was deeply into reading philosophy and theosophy when I had a job in London. Then I got to Gombe, and to start with, I was so concerned with getting the chimpanzees used to me and finding out interesting information before the money ran out that I wasn't aware of the forest around me. But after the money came in, and I was spending hours and hours in the rainforest. Then I immediately felt this really close connection with the spirit, really, the spirit of nature. You know, we know now that connection with nature is tremendously important. It improves people's health to be out in nature. Children need to be in nature for their really good psychological development. Um, if you green an area of high crime in a city, then the crime level drops. But out in the forest, and other environments too, but especially the forest, you just have this very strong feeling of the interconnection of all life forms, how every species has a role to play in this beautiful tapestry of life. And you start to think, well, I started to think, you know, I think I'm here for a purpose. I wasn't sure what the purpose was, but it felt that life wasn't meaningless, that there was a deeper meaning. And so being in the rainforest gave me a lot of time to think about this spiritual connection with the natural world. And I think that's been one of our big problems, this concern with materialistic Western life, this lack of connection with any kind of spiritual belief, 
and it's destroying us. If you, in terms of your own sense of purpose, you were just describing, if there's any sort of unfinished business that you feel you've got, what would you want listeners to do to help you take care of that unfinished business? I think the most important message for everybody to hear is that their lives matter. They have a role to play and what they do every day makes a difference. And it's only when everyone is doing their bit. Some people can do a lot, either by giving money or raising awareness or whatever it is, just picking up litter or, you know, something like that. And when everybody gets together and does the best that they can do to make this world a better place, that's when we can move towards a better way of life and leave a better planet for our children and theirs. Thank you so much for leaving us with that message. And we really appreciate you talking with us. Well, thank you very much. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review, and join us next week for a brand new episode. 